I'd invite you to stand and to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 17. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we ask that in this time that you would subdue us to yourself that you would rule over us as our great king, that you would defend our hearts, that you would restrain and conquer your enemies and ours, that the world, the flesh, and the devil, their voices would be drowned out, and that we would hear the voice of our king, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Why are we so captivated by stories about kings? Think about your favorite stories for a lot of us in this room, probably the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy or Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, there's, in, whether it's reading through the books or, or watching the movies, there is something I think in those stories that is appealing to us about faithful leaders who do the right thing about those who do the right thing so that good prevails over evil. I'm not going to spend any time getting into the plot lines of those stories. I'm no expert. Uh, there's others here, specifically James, I think, who is more of an expert in those things. So if you want to get into Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, trivia or whatever, you can probably, he'll probably go toe-to-toe with you. But I simply mention those things because it helps to remind us of that longing that we have deep down inside of us. As we watch those movies, as we read those books, there's something inside of us that wells up. 
And I think it's a longing. It's a good longing that is from God. It's a longing for peace and security. It's a longing for a world that is free from evil and chaos and corruption. And while the sin within us and the sin in this world often blinds us to this hope, we need to be reminded of where things are going. We need to be reminded of where things are going in the midst of the chaos around us. So those stories and others like it are so wonderful and so comforting because they are just a tiny reflection of the greater story of the history of redemption. Not a fairy tale version of what we hope could be true someday, but the eternal truths about what God has done and what God is doing to reverse the curse of the fall, to redeem lost sinners, and to establish his kingdom. For me, this is one of the most exciting themes, I think, in the whole Bible. It's one of the things that I love to teach and preach on, and I feel like we can really only just begin to scratch the surface here in these four weeks as we look at Jesus as our king, but we're going to try our hardest uh, to cover as much of this and as faithfully as we can. So over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at Jesus as our king, just as we looked at Jesus as our prophet and our priest. Two sermons in the Old Testament, kind of doing that preparation work. What did it look like for the people of Israel? What did that office of prophet, priest, and king look like? One sermon in the New Testament, looking at Jesus, how Jesus specifically fulfills that office, and then the fourth one, fourth and final one, is going to be how it applies to us both individually and corporately as the people of God. And we'll, we'll kind of touch on a little bit of those things today, but the fourth one will be specifically focused on that. We've made the argument, I think, this whole summer uh, many times regarding Jesus' threefold office that he doesn't occupy three distinct offices and operate in them separately. So he's not king on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, prophet on Tuesday and Thursday, and then priest on the weekends. Uh, he doesn't have an identity crisis. He is always executing his offices of prophet, priest, and king 24-7, 365, all at the same time. Now that said, I do want to argue that there is something different about Jesus as king that we must consider. That doesn't mean this is more important than him being our prophet and our priest. It's just a dynamic that we don't quite see in the other two. Well, what is that difference? First, we need to start off by saying that there is no king without a kingdom to rule over. As we discuss king over the next four weeks, we have to constantly keep the kingdom of God in mind. There is no such thing as a prophetdom or a priestdom. The prophets and priests in the Old Testament of the kingdom of God manifested through the people of Israel who were called to be faithful to God and to serve him and to be a light to the nations around them. The prophets did this through the faithful communication of God's word to God's people, reminding them of the covenant promises of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. The priests, they were responsible for leading God's people in faithful worship, the faithful worship of God, so that God's name might be honored and glorified and that he might be exalted as the true king among all the nations. 
We must also consider the representative nature of earthly kings. As the kings represent God on earth, it is inevitable that the character of the king will shape the character of his kingdom, and therefore the character of the citizens of the kingdom. So in other words, the faithfulness of earthly kings is very important for the peace and the well-being of God's people. Well, so why does all of this matter for us? Aren't our lives here today in the 21st century kind of far removed from that type of world that we see here in Deuteronomy? Or maybe are we intended to see in the failings of the kings throughout the Old Testament a reflection of our own failures to obey God and to exercise dominion in the way that he has called us to? So in order to get to where we're headed in our passage for this morning, we need to back up and get a little bit of the backstory while seeing how we're always pointed forward to a future hope. Introduction this morning is going to be a little bit longer, but this should help to fill in some of our context for today and for the next few weeks. So let's start in the beginning. You might be thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to be really long. It's not going to be that long. But let's start in the beginning. Let's start in Genesis 1. We're given that majestic account of God creating all things out of nothing in the space of six days and all very good. One aspect of this goodness was that God gave humans dominion over all living things. We were created to rule and to reign. That is a good thing. Humans ruling and reigning in this world is not a result of the fall. It's part of God's creation mandate. But we've already highlighted several times this summer how Adam and Eve failed to execute their prophet, priest, and king roles. And as a result of their rebellion, we see chaos now in the natural world. Things are disordered and they need to be restored to the way God intended. And God has promised that he will fix what we have broken. This is the central storyline from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. God fixing what we have broken. We find ourselves here today in Deuteronomy 17 at a very pivotal point in Israel's journey. Deuteronomy is the retelling of God's faithfulness to his people despite their sin, and it's a reminder of how they are to walk with him as they prepare to enter into the promised land. It's in that time of the leadership transition from Moses to Joshua. And the faithful leadership of God's people is a major concern, especially here in chapters 16 through 18, as we see instructions given for judges. Just if you look at your your headings there, there are instructions for judges and priests and kings and prophets. Remember Deuteronomy 18, that was the second sermon that we had in our series. It was the first one of the prophet series. How Moses said that the Lord will raise up from among you, from among your brothers, a prophet like him, and they shall listen to him. In order to grasp then the weight of the necessity for godly leadership in Israel, we actually have to fast forward a little bit before we come back to Deuteronomy 17. I promise we're going to get there, okay? Next week... Bill is going to be preaching on 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel 
comes to Samuel and they demand a king. As we'll see, that passage is very closely tied to our passage for today. But nestled in between Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel, there are a few books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. The book of Judges, uh, in particular, is where we want to camp out here for a minute. The whole book of Judges is pretty wild. Um, the beginning, follow the stories of, of a, a bunch of judges who kind of rule for a short amount of time, and then we have the, the account of Gideon and the account of Samson. And then things take a decisively dark turn in chapter 17. There's a man named Micah who confesses to his mother that he stole a very large amount of silver from her. He returns it to her. She goes and takes some of the silver to the silversmith and a couple uh, idols are made. Then Micah makes a shrine and an ephod, which we looked at a few weeks ago in Exodus 28 and 29. It's the clothing that the priest was supposed to wear. Micah makes one of those on his own. Then he makes some household gods. Then he ordains one of his own sons as his priest. And this, is, this whole thing is a disaster on so many levels. And all of this is recounted in the first five verses of Deuteronomy 17. Then do you know what, or sorry, uh, Judges 17. Uh, then do you know what Judges 17, 6 tells us after that account? You know the verse, you just might not know that it's here. Because it's also repeated word for word in Judges 21, 25, the very last verse of Judges. What is it? Yes, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, okay? If you've read your, like, that's like the verse, right? If you're going to memorize one verse from each book of the Bible, like, everyone's memorizing Judges 21, 25, right? It's like, it's the key verse in the book of Judges. No king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's chapter 17. Chapter 18 and chapter 19 of Judges both begin with the words, in those days there was no king in Israel. So this refrain happens in the next two chapters as well. And if you recall, Judges chapter 19 is the account of the Levite and his concubine. I think this is one of the, probably one of the darkest stories in all the Bible. One of the, obviously apart from the crucifixion of Christ, right? I think this is probably the hardest passage that there is to read. This is not a PG or PG-13 account, right? The Levite and his concubine. Israel is in a dark, dark place here at the end of Judges. And Richard Belcher, in his book, Prophet, Priest, and King, he says this. He says, instead of an external threat, the end of Judges describes the internal threat of the disobedience of God's people. It shows the complete breakdown of God's law, leading to sexual and social perversion. A godly king is needed to keep Israel on the path of holiness so that she can fulfill her mission. I think it's incredible how applicable this statement is to the church today. This has not been a good year for Christian leadership. Scandals have rocked many churches and organizations. And lest 
we think the refrain of no king in Israel and everyone doing what is right in their own eyes was something that those primitive people way back then struggled with, we'd better take a good long look in the mirror. I might be taking a little bit of liberty here, and maybe Dr. Belcher would be okay with it. I don't know, but I'm going to reread his quote for us, and I'm going to replace the words, the end of Judges, with today's Christian headlines, and Israel with the church. So here it is. Instead of an external threat, today's Christian headlines describe the internal threat of the disobedience of God's people. It shows the complete breakdown of God's law leading to sexual and social perversion. A godly king is needed to keep the church on the path of holiness so that she can fulfill her mission. A godly king is needed to keep the church on the path of holiness so that she can fulfill her mission. That was true for Israel, and it's true for the church today. And that's what we're going to see in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So if you're taking notes, three-part outline. All three things are going to start with three words. We need a, so you can write that down. We need a, three things that we need. We need a God-appointed king. We need a god satisfied king, and we need a God-fearing king. A God-appointed king, a God-satisfied king, and a God-fearing king. And I'll repeat each of the one, one of those as we get to them. First, we need a God-appointed king. Moses is writing here to remind the people of a coming day, which he describes in verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, dot, 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 right? So Moses is describing this time that's coming in the book of Joshua, right? When the people are going to enter into the land, they're going to come into the land. God is giving it to them to possess it. They're going to dwell in it. And he says that you will say then, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Here is the issue, okay? The issue here is this phrase, like all the nations that are around me. Bill will probably be getting into this next week. When we look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, a lot of times people will say, oh, Israel should not have asked for a king. That's not true. God told them, God said before it would happen that they would ask for a king. What's the issue? The issue is right here that they will ask for a king like the nations around them. Belcher does it. I'm not going to get into all this, but Belcher does a great job in, in chapter five, six, chapter six, uh, chapter six of his book, kind of describing what, how Israel's king was supposed to be different from the king of the nations around them. But this here is the, is the main issue. This is the issue. It's that Israel wanted a king like the nations around them. So I would go read, go read 1 Samuel chapter 8 and prepare for next week. And again, keep this in mind that God promised that he would give them a king. And then he tells them very clearly in verse 15 what type of king that they should set over themselves. He says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. 
one from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. The issue going on here is entanglement with the nations and the ways of those nations. This was a major issue for the people of God. And we see the fruit of this. We will see the fruit of this in our next section. So entanglement with foreign nations, this is clearly an issue, but it's ultimately an external issue, right? It's something that they're doing on the outside. What's the internal issue here? What's the heart issue? And again, I think it's the same for Israel that it often is for us. God is in control and he calls the shots. But we want things to be done in our own way without having to submit to his authority. I think a great place to see this practically worked out is in the book of Proverbs. King Solomon is writing to his son and to the sons of Israel about true wisdom. And there's this constant refrain in the first eight chapters of Proverbs. Things like, hear my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandment within you. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Now, any adult in this room knows this battle between listening to and following your parents' advice and wanting to do things your own way. We've all lived that reality. And many of us actually are still probably at some level dealing with the consequences of some of those foolish decisions that we made in our younger years still to this point in our lives. And now for those of us who are parents, we have the joy of having the shoe on the other foot as we try to instill in our children that they are to obey their parents in the Lord That obedience to mom and dad is obedience to God. That there's wisdom in doing things God's way rather than doing things our own way. This is often a very hard lesson to learn. Children, not just my own, I'll look at you first, but children, all of you, and young people, right? And really all of us, don't learn the hard way, right? Do things God's way. Don't go your own way. I think one especially beautiful truth that's brought out in Proverbs is that found in Proverbs 21, 1 through 2. A verse that is probably very familiar to many of us. It says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Guys, if God is powerful enough to direct the heart of the king, how much more can he direct the heart of common folks like us? And the reminder that every way of a man is right in his own eyes is also a sobering one. That was the issue at the end of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
And lest we think that Israel being tempted to set a king over themselves, other than the one of God's own choosing, was a them problem, let us realize that not obeying God and seeking to be wise in our own eyes is an us problem. So Israel needed a God-appointed king, and so do we. The second thing we need is a God-satisfied king, meaning a king who finds his identity and his purpose as king, not in what he has or does, but in his delight in the Lord, a king who is satisfied in his God. And the things addressed here in verses 16 and 17 in this great stroke of irony are the very things that Solomon warns his son and the sons of Israel about in the first eight chapters of Proverbs. The trappings of wealth and the dangers of illicit sexual relationships. The things that would cause Solomon's heart to turn from the Lord and for the kingdom to be divided in two. The first thing is the acquisition of many horses for himself or we see here in verse 16, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Psalm 33 verses 16 and 17 is very clear on this. The psalmist says the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. The people are warned here, don't look to the strength of your army. Don't look to the strength of, of warriors and horses. It is a false hope for salvation. So the king here is told that he should not acquire many horses for himself. The two glaring issues here are first looking to something other than the Lord for deliverance. The horse here obviously symbolizes military might, right? It symbolizes power over other nations. And the second thing is not returning to Egypt. They shall not go back to where they came from. If you've, if you've read through the Old Testament, you, you'll know that this is a common refrain, right? This issue comes up over and over this refrain to not return to Egypt. In Numbers chapter 14, after the spies have returned with the report that there are giants in the land, and they, the people grumble against Moses and Aaron, they say, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. But God says, don't go back. I will choose your leader and you shall never return that way again. Now the issue here is not a literal return to Egypt. While that, while that may be a, while that may a, appear to be what they desired here as they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron, there was actually something deeper going on. And we learn this from Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, as he's about to be stoned by the crowds, he's recounting how the people of Israel rebelled against Moses 
rebelled against God while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. The people were upset that it was taking so long, and they made a golden calf, and they attributed their deliverance from Egypt to an idol that they had made with their own hands. Stephen, in describing this, says, in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. In their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They weren't going to literally turn around and march back to Egypt. But in their hearts, by rejecting the Lord, they turned back. The very people who had been miraculously delivered from actual human slavery, who had witnessed the army of Egypt drown right in front of their very eyes as they crossed the Red Sea on dry land. And we say to ourselves, how could you guys be so stupid? But then we realize that we must ask ourselves the same question. What does it look like for our hearts to turn back to Egypt? To buy into the lie that life on the other side of following Jesus was so much better. Maybe without the trials and the hardships and the persecutions that we now face, right? We might say, man, I didn't have to deal with all that stuff back then. And perhaps it starts subtly. Just some fleeting thoughts here and there. And then we start flirting with the rejection of God's way of doing things as we continue to believe the lie that it was better back there. And I want to tell you, it's not. I promise you, it's not better back there. Don't believe that lie. No amount of pleasure or possessions that this world tries to offer us can satisfy our deepest desires. This is true from the most powerful person in the land, the king or the president, down to the beggars on the street. And that's the warning for the king here regarding the acquisition of many wives and excessive silver and gold. These were the very things that caused Solomon's heart to turn away from the Lord. His satisfaction was not in the Lord, but it was in his stuff. And we live in a day where there is plenty of stuff to distract us and when we where we are challenged to find our satisfaction in the things of this world and not in God so we need a god appointed king and a god satisfied king finally we need a god fearing king we're given here a fantastic description of how the king should conduct himself in verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Notice the king is not making up his own rules, right? He's not saying, I'm going to reign in my kingdom however I feel like it. No, I'm going to do it God's way according, according to God's laws, and the priests whom God has appointed are going to hold me accountable, right? I'm not the top guy. I'm not the top dog in the land. Humanly speaking, sure, but there is a God who is above me, and I'm going to submit to him. And then verse 19. It shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. 
He's not to set it on a shelf and say, gee, I wish there was someone who could read this and interpret it for me and tell me how I should live. He's to read from it every day on his own and understand what God's word tells him. This king, this most powerful person in the earthly kingdom, was to do that in order to remind himself that there is one seated on the throne who is higher than him to whom he must submit. Look with me in verses 19 and 20. There are four statements here, four words, that, it's that, 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 and then the last one is so that. And these explain why the king should read from God's law all the days of his life, starting there in verse, the middle of verse 19. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Okay, that's pretty obvious. He's to obey God and do what God says. Second, beginning of verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Okay, this is going back to uh, verse 15, that they were to, he, they were to set a king uh, among set a king over them from among their brothers. So the, the king is not to be lifted up above, above his brothers. He's to be one of them and he's to be humble and to, to be submissive to the Lord just as they are. Third, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left. Another refrain that's found throughout the Old Testament, not turning away, not turning aside. is found a lot throughout Proverbs, not turning away from God's commandments. It's also found in other places here in Deuteronomy. And the last one, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, that he, or, sorry, that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. I love this last one here because the emphasis is that it's so much bigger than just the king. It's about faithfulness to God. It's about flour- the flourishing of future generations. We actually see a connection here between this and the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That phrase there, may be long, is the same wording that's used here that the king may continue long in his kingdom. Paul in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. And then he's going to quote the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And then we have in parentheses here. This is the first commandment with a promise. So there's a promise attached to honoring your father and your mother. What is it? That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay? So this connection between the king reading God's word, that he may continue long, that his children may continue long in the land, is very much tied with the idea of all children obeying their parents and all children obeying that authority that God has placed over them. And adults, you are still children of your parents, right? We are all to honor our father and mothers, regardless of of how old we are. So living long in the land was a major concern for the people of Israel. And Paul says that it should be a major concern for us as the church, too. Obviously, the difference is that for Israel, living long in the land was actually on a physical plot of land, right? For us, it's a spiritual, um, 
a spiritual dwelling. Well, if only Israel could have had a God-appointed king who was satisfied in God alone and who feared God and kept his commandments. If only the church of Jesus Christ had that same type of king. Think about how verses 19 and 20 were fulfilled by Jesus. He was the word made flesh who spoke the true words from God all the days of his life. He feared God and kept all of his law and commandments perfectly. And his perfect obedience gets credited to us. His heart was not lifted up above his brothers. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived sinlessly and he died sinlessly for you and for me. He did not turn aside from God's commandments, not one centimeter, and he continues long in his kingdom and is seated now at the right hand of the Father and will come again so that the children of God may continue long with him forever in his kingdom. It is simply unfathomable that common folks like us, indeed not only common, but kingdom rebels, might be rescued by our king and given a place in his kingdom. What mercy, what love, what hope we have in God's chosen king. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this reminder from your word of the type of king that you would set over your people that we saw in shadows and types in the Old Testament, and now we see fully in Christ, our King. May we see him. May we see him seated on his throne. May we see him exalted at your right hand, ruling and reigning the nations. And God, may we long for the day when he will come again to make all things right, to restore what was broken and lost in the fall, to reign over us that we might live long with him forever in his kingdom. God, we thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you for how you have reconciled us to yourself through your son's death in our place. May we live out that reality day by day, as we are reminded of the gospel. And may we go out from here and declare it to a world that needs a king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.